Well, we could do that all day. That's the main event, right? It's the glory of God. So these are some of the best words I get to say all week. Let's open our Bibles and let's go to Mark chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I'd uh, love for you to follow along on our Bible app. You'll find us under events there. You can uh, follow along with the scriptures, take notes if you want, or our ushers are coming around. If you forgot yours, we get it. We understand. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. And uh, we are going to be in Mark chapter 5. We're actually going to finish Mark chapter 5 today. And, and just to remind you, uh, Mark has been answering two questions for us. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And then, what does it mean to be his disciple? And in the last couple of weeks, we've uh, unintentionally, we've noticed that we've been in a three-part series, if you will, on Jesus' power and his authority. Mark's just trying to prove to you what he said at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus really is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And so he's trying to prove to you that Jesus has power, and he has power over nature. We saw that a couple weeks ago when he calmed the storm. Last week we saw that he has power over evil when he healed a man who was demon-possessed. This week we're going to see that he has power over our suffering. And he's going to heal some people that are sick, and he's going to raise someone from the dead. Now, I just wonder how many of you have noticed that you are getting older? You notice that? Okay, so I don't know how this works in your house, but in my house, uh, birthdays come around, and birthdays are big time, okay? Carissa had to teach me this a little bit, because you can't not have breakfast in bed on your birthday, and you're going to get presents. I know, it's like, it's serious, okay? And, and we, 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 you're going to get to pick your, your cake and the theme and parties and all of that. We, it, it is a big deal. It is, if it's your birthday, it is your big day. Carissa actually gets her entire month, which she totally deserves, but we kept having kids, and so some of us have to share. But we decided a couple of years ago that, you know, this is not quite as fun. And so, so Carissa and I decided that we are not going to have birthdays anymore. Tired of calling it that. I mean, we just don't get excited about getting another year older. When you, when you were 16, you're like, yes, 16. Nobody does that once you hit 30. You're like, woohoo, 30. Like, we're not feeling that anymore. And so we decided we're not going to call it birthdays. We call it personal celebration holidays. Anybody else get behind that and feel that? You're welcome to steal that if it will soften the blow of a birthday you have coming up. Who needs another reminder that your body is getting old and that it's stuff starting to fall apart and it's not working like it used to? Does anybody need a reminder of that? Listen, I, I, I had a dad bod before I was a dad, so at least now I have an excuse, but I also used to have a whole lot more hair. And now all of a sudden I have to worry about like my diet and I have to do some exercising and, and I'm realizing that, that maintenance becomes a really big deal because stuff doesn't work like it used to when I was little. You ever, you ever notice that um, kids can do things that would easily put adults in the hospital? You ever, you ever notice that? Like, they're so flexible, and they can bounce back from all sorts of stuff. I realized this the other day when I was changing Javen's diaper. I, I, I had him on the bed, and he's, I'm, you know, he's laying down on his back, and he's kicking, and he's playing. He doesn't want to do this any more than I do. And, and so he's, like, fighting this, and I realized that his foot is basically coming all the way up to his face. And, and I don't my, my mom's actually here. I don't know if maybe I did that once upon a time, but, but there's no way. I'm looking at my son. He's, he's essentially doing these massive crunches, and I'm realizing, like, if I did 
two of those. Carissa would be hearing me complain for like three days of how much pain I was in. Some of that is because I'm out of shape. But all of us, at some point, have to face the reality that we're declining. That we're not going to be around here forever. And, and if we're honest, a lot of times we make light of the fact that we're getting older, that we're getting closer to death. Because what else are we supposed to do? It's not always fun to think about, is it? If you have not already, you will have to deal with sickness and decay in, in you or in someone else. And it's just a, a scary and depressing reminder of the impacts of the curse of sin that we have to face our mortality. Because of sin, this world is broken. And so we suffer. Maybe some of you would feel like the author Mary Roach who said, I don't fear death so much as I fear its prologues. Loneliness, decrepitude, pain, debilitation, depression, senility. After a few years of those, I imagine death presents like a holiday at the beach. How do you handle suffering? And maybe even worse is watching the suffering of someone that you love and kind of the fear that you might lose them. What do you do? Well, I want to give you a big idea from the text this morning, and I, I'm just hoping that this is massively going to build your faith. Okay, note this. In your suffering, you can trust Jesus' power and his perfect timing. Okay? Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. These are realities that all of us have to face at some level, at some degree. And Lord, we need a reminder. We need a little hope. And you've been showing us that you are powerful and, and that you're good. And so I pray that those two truths, the combination of your sovereignty and your goodness, would encourage us again that we have hope. We have reason to trust. I pray that you would encourage our hearts with these truths as we hear them from your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let me give you two reactions to suffering for the disciples of Jesus, okay? If you're a disciple of Jesus, here's how you're to react. Note this, trust his power. Trust his power. Let me show that to you. Verse 21, chapter 5, verse 21, Mark says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, 
And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and in trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I just want to give you a little context here as we're jumping into this. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side. So he's back in Galilee now. He's crossing over the Sea of Galilee. And so last week we saw essentially he kind of went on a short-term missions trip to the Decapolis and to that Gentile area. And they didn't want him around. And so he left, but he didn't leave without a witness. Because remember, he sent the man that he had healed from the demon possession. He sent him back to his friend's to tell them how much the Lord had done for him. And so now Jesus gets in the boat and he comes back to Galilee. And as soon as he lands, a great crowd gathered. Just want you to notice this, that this crowd has shown up in every chapter so far in the book. They are relentless. And we've said it's kind of like if you went to lunch at noon on Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day, right? That's the kind of insanity that's surrounding Jesus wherever he goes. But verse 22 tells us that a ruler of the synagogue came in. Okay, so let me, let me tell you what this is. So this might have been a Pharisee, but most likely this was a layman who was chosen by the elders to keep order in the synagogue. And we don't know which synagogue it was, but it was his job to kind of coordinate and oversee the services. He's the guy that got to pick who was going to read the scriptures and who was going to teach. In fact, we, we went this week to the Museum of the Bible. You guys, you guys been to the Museum of the Bible yet? If you haven't gone, you got to go. It's awesome. It's beautiful. They've got like a replica synagogue that you can go in. You can kind of see what it would have been like. This is the guy that made sure that everything was running smoothly in the synagogue, which means it's possible that he's run into Jesus before. Because we've seen Jesus, he was teaching in the synagogues in chapter 1, and then he was back in the synagogues in chapter 3. That's when he healed the man with the withered hand. And so it's possible that this guy already knows Jesus. But Mark tells us something else about him. He tells, him his, he tells us his name. His name is Jairus. Okay, so that's not normal for Mark to give us those details, right? We've, we've come up with all sorts of people that he's, you know, Jesus is healed and he's interacted with. We don't know their names. Why, why, why does he tell his name? Well, it's, it's, it's possible that Peter remembered this guy. Remember, Mark is probably John Mark writing down Peter's eyewitness account. So this is kind of Peter's memoirs. It's, we don't know, but it's possible that this made such an impression on Jairus that years from now, Peter knows him, and when he's telling the story, he can't help but just throw that little detail in. It's personal. But Jairus comes, verse 23, and he's imploring Jesus. My little, my little daughter's at the point of death. And we don't know uh, what the sickness was. I mean, he may not have even known. But this is an emergency. I mean, you could just feel the urgency in him. You, you put yourself in his shoes. If this is your daughter, what would you be doing? Come on, parents. We, 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 when, you, you, when your kid's in trouble, you're like, 
your adrenaline kicks into a different gear, right? You're going to do whatever it takes. And so when it says that he implored him earnestly, I don't know if that that captures the, the desperation and the emotion that he would have felt. He falls down on his knees. You can just see him dropping to his knees. Please, please. My daughter, my, my little girl, she's dying. Do you, do you feel the tragedy of this? Like it's gut-wrenching to go into a hospital and see little kids suffering like that, isn't it? So let's just call it what it is. A 12-year-old little girl is not supposed to be laying on her deathbed. That is such a stark contrast to God's original good design for his creation. So he says, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jairus believes. He believes what, as Tolkien said, that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. He believes that if Jesus would just, his hands could just touch her, she'd be made well. This is a picture for us of discipleship. This is a picture of us, for us, of the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for in his disciples. Not just like, oh yeah, like I believe Jesus. Yeah, Jesus has got some power, but, but a belief in him that moves us to action. Like we're gonna come with expectation. He can do what he says he can do. And so Jesus, verse 24 says, he went with him. And I don't think that Jesus just kind of lazily starts strolling along like, sure, I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll come check it out. I'll see, see what's going on. No, no, no. I want you to picture first responders in an emergency. We're in crisis mode here. Like this, this, this little girl is dialing. Like how fast would you be trying to get back? Every second counts. Turn the sirens on. We got to move. Let's go. And so I actually love that, that verse 24 actually in my Bible, is broken up into a separation of another paragraph because it literally leaves this story hanging. It says a great crowd followed and thronged about him. That word means to, to press together. Like, can't get through. You can't get through this kind of traffic. And I want you to picture, I know this is going to be so hard for you to believe, but I want you to be able to picture a, a car uh, on 66 behind a sea of taillights coming out of D.C. at 5 o'clock. Can you picture that? And, and, and then there's an ambulance trying to get through. And, and cars are trying to get out of the way. The sirens are going. The horn is going. I mean, this is super frustrating. This, this poor dad has got to be about to lose it at this point. we got to hurry. And then Mark says, verse 25, and there was a woman. He said, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You, you, you can't start telling another story. We're in the middle of a story. What, what, what are you doing? We're in an emergency here. Well, well this actually becomes a, a story sandwich. We've seen this before, right? Mark uses this literary device a lot where he starts a story and then he interrupts it with another one. And so we get one story sandwiched in another and the middle helps us understand the outer. And so in this case, what, what happens to this woman is gonna help us understand what's happening to Jairus. But narratively, this is kind of an inappropriate interaction, interruption, isn't it? We've got a crisis going on. We're, we're in the middle of an emergency. But the shift in, in, in Mark's focus is actually going to heighten the tension, and I think it's going to clarify the resolution in just a minute. But we learn about this woman. She has a discharge of blood for 12 years. So he's on his way to a deathbed, and he is interrupted by someone with a chronic condition. 
may not be as immediate, may not be as life-threatening, but listen, she's still suffering too. In fact, it's pretty bad, verse 26. I mean, she's gone to the doctor, she's gone to the OB, she spent all her money, the insurance won't cover anything else. She's riding this roller coaster of emotions every time the doctor, uh, you know, tells her about this other possible treatment that we could try, getting the hopes up. Like, maybe, maybe this time it'll work, and then drop back down to despair when it doesn't. And in fact, the symptoms just keep getting worse and worse. It's not working. We've exhausted every possible option. This woman is crushed. It's, it's, it's a hopeless case. You ever felt that? Often in our suffering, we get to a point where we, we, we just feel the, the weight of our helplessness to alleviate it. It's like nothing I can do about this. But she's heard about Jesus. She's heard the reports about him. And so the text says that she, she came up behind him. That's probably because she's embarrassed and she, she's, you know, she's ashamed of her situation. So she, she kind of sneaks in behind him and she touches his garment. Because she's thinking in her mind, like, if I just touch even just his garment, I'll be healed. You see her faith? She believes that Jesus has that power. Now, it might be mixed with a little bit of superstition. Some scholars um, tell us that a lot of people believed in those days that, that if you could touch the garments of somebody who was great, somebody who is important, that somehow a little bit of their power would kind of rub off on you. Almost like if you, you know, took your kid to the Wizards game. You go to the Wizards game, and afterwards, John Wall takes off his jersey, and he throws it out, and the kid gets it. Now he puts it on. He's like, woo I'm going to be super fast. I'm going to be ready for the NBA. This little superstition going on here. She may not understand it. She may not understand how it all works, but her actions demonstrate her faith that he really can heal. And so the text says she was healed immediately. But then watch what happens. Verse 30. Jesus, this is interesting. Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out. Like, how did he know? I don't know. Did he get like a notification on his phone? Did he start feeling a little tingle in his body? I, like, I, none of us really know what that would have felt like because we also don't know what it feels like to have the power to, you know, create stars and planets and, and, and calm seas and cast out demons and such. We don't know, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew that power had gone out. And so he says he immediately turned about and he said, who touched my garments? Hold up. Time out. Who did it? Who did it? And I love the disciples' reactions, verse 31. They're like, what are you talking about? All sorts of people have been touching you. Man, we've been bumping it all. Like, I've been stepping on people's toes. I think I elbowed a kid back in the face over there. Like, I don't know if you've noticed this, Jesus, but anytime you show up, it kind of turns into this giant mosh pit of people. And so you turning around in this crowd and looking for one person, kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack, right? And, and oh, by the way, we can't stop. I don't know if you remember this, but we have a little girl who's in the ER on life support. What are you doing? We, we gotta hurry. We gotta move. But verse 32 says he, looked around to see who had done it. See, he's looking. He's not going to let this go. Don't, don't you think that Jesus could have been satisfied just knowing that he'd helped somebody, even in the process of helping somebody else? Kind of like Spider-Man inadvertently saving someone from a car wreck as he's on the way to save the city. But Jesus stops because he's concerned for that one woman. He's pursuing her. 
He wants, he's, he's looking for her. He's, he's going after her. In fact, he's pursuing her with as much, if not more, tenacity as she was seeking him out. Because he cares. And his attention is personal. You ever been talking to somebody that was kind of like important, you know, one of those people that like, they have all sorts of other people. Maybe they've got a line of people that, that, that you're talking to and you finally get your turn to talk to them. But as soon as you get up there, you can tell they're only sort of listening to you. You know, they're not really paying attention and they're like watching everything else. You, you, you ever felt that? That's not Jesus. Man, I, I wish I could be more like him. When you are suffering, he is honed in on you. And it's almost embarrassing for her. Verse, verse 33 tells us that she, well, she, she knew what had happened. She knew it was going to find out. So she, she comes in, in fear and in trembling. Remember, she just wanted to be able to sneak in behind him, like get the little healing, sneak away, not cause a scene, don't want anybody looking, don't need attention, not looking for that. She just wants to be healed. But Jesus wants her. So he's going after her. When she tells him what happened, Notice, he doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't get angry, even though she should not have touched him. You know that? A a woman who is bleeding is unclean. That's a big deal to the Jews, okay? You can't go to synagogue. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to, you got to go through this washing and and purification process. You got to keep your distance. And anyone who touches her becomes unclean too. In fact, it's crazy. Every story in Mark chapter 5 involves Jesus coming into contact with the unclean. Last week we saw that, that he healed that man, the text says, with an unclean spirit who is coming out of the tombs, which means he was unclean because he was in contact with the dead bodies. And now we see this bleeding woman is unclean. And spoiler alert, the, the, the little girl, uh, she's about to die and he's going to go in. And so when he touches her, she's unclean there too. So I want you to see Jesus' power. He is powerful, but it's not cold and uncaring. He is willing to draw near and to touch those whom everyone else would shun and avoid. This is a picture of the love of Christ in the gospel. He loves us, not because we're so lovable. Not, not, not. He sees us in our uncleanness and all of our mess and all of our sin, and we bring nothing to him deserving of his attention, yet he draws near in his mercy and in his grace. He's not repulsed because he loves. And he's not only willing, but he is able to exchange our uncleanness with healing, to make us whole. So he doesn't let this woman sneak away because he wants her to know him. He wants the relationship. Disciples don't just come to Jesus to get their needs met. We want to know him. We want to follow him. We want to, because we believe what he says he is. If we can be honest, a lot of times when we're suffering, all we want is relief. I, I just want to get this over with. I don't want to feel like this anymore. And, and so we start, we, we, we turn to anything. I mean, we start seeking the uh, you know, relief in medication and the advice of experts and, and the security of relationships and the comfort of convenience, the escape of entertainment. Listen, many of those good things, but none of them will prove to be a trustworthy source of confidence for you. You can be thankful for them, but don't put your trust in them. 
What he's saying, Jesus wants us to know him. He's asking this woman to learn to trust him because he is the only one who has the power to do something about your suffering. So he's leaning in. Now look at what he says, verse 34. He says to her, daughter. There's an invitation for relationship. He wants way more for her than just relief from her suffering. He wants her to know it's not magic, okay? It was her faith in him, the text says, that made you well. That word there means to save. So what he's saying to us is that we need to trust his power. Trust him. Only he can save you from your suffering. Give you peace. Let me give you the second reaction to suffering if you're a disciple of Jesus. Note this. Trust his timing. Trust his timing. I'm going to pick up with the story where we left off, verse 35. Verse 35, he says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why why are you making a commotion? Why, Why are you weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years age and years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement and he strictly charged them that no one should know this and he told them to give her something to eat. If we put ourselves in this moment, this is the part where the story almost gets infuriating. Because you don't need a medical degree to triage this situation and see the priority here, right? I mean, we got a little girl that's dying, and when he stops to heal this woman, somebody's got to be thinking like, ma'am, appreciate your suffering, but we got a situation here. We've got a little girl that's dying. And so the text says that while he was still speaking, what's he saying? He's saying, daughter, faith has made you well. While he says those words, someone comes up to Jairus and says, your daughter is dead. Honestly, can't even imagine what that moment must have felt like as a dad. And the text says that it doesn't tell us that he said anything. You can just imagine that he's overcome with a flood of emotions as his faith is being attested. I mean, what must Jairus have been feeling when he was rushing Jesus home? Like, we gotta move, we gotta, we gotta hurry, we gotta get there in time. And then he stops to interact with somebody else. Can we just call it like it is? It seems pretty obvious to us what Jesus should have done. 
He went with him to help in every second count. Why, why, did, why did he stop? Why did he stop? Why didn't he work faster? Why wasn't he moving faster? And now it's too, it's too late. Do you ever feel like God's timing is off? Yeah, do you ever feel like, like you're, you're just waiting and you don't really know why you're waiting? God, why aren't you answering? Why are you letting this happen to me? You could have stopped this by now. Why? Why? And in the middle of our pain and suffering, we have this, this urgency to pray and ask God to work. We know that we need him to work, but we want him to work now. God, I want you to do this now. And so when he doesn't work now and he's not working in our timing, we're tempted not to trust him. I'm tempted to think that he's not good, that he doesn't care. Because if he really did care, he wouldn't have let this happen to me. He would have prevented this, or he would have stopped it by now, or he would have answered my cry for help. And then I'm tempted to think that I know better than he does. And I know that's like an arrogant thing to say, but how often do I really believe that in my heart? That, that God, if you would have just listened to me, if you would have done what I asked you to do, when I asked you to do it, this wouldn't be happening right now. She's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's over. It's too late. There's no hope. But, but it says, verse 36 says, but, but Jesus was overhearing. That, that, that word has the idea of physically hearing something, but purposefully ignoring it. Okay, so the man uh, tell, comes up and tells Jairus, give it up. It's too late. There's no hope. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't you listen to that. Look at me, look at me. Do not fear. Only believe. Jesus has not lost control of this situation, and it is not too late. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. I know that you, you may be feeling in yourself, God is asking you to trust him. Will you trust him that he knows better, that he knows exactly what he's doing, and that his timing is perfect? So he proves it to him. He takes an inner circle of eyewitnesses, and he comes to the house. They run into a commotion, weeping and wailing. And, you know, people, I mean, this is tragic. I mean, this is sad. This is awful that he runs into. But he says something really weird, verse 39. He says, why, why are you making a commotion? Why are, why are you weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, now some people, when they come to this, they, they wrongly believe that we should take that literally, that, that she actually didn't die. Like, you know, it's kind of probably because they think it's easier to believe that he just healed as opposed to raised someone from the dead. So this is almost like Miracle Max in, in Princess Bride when he tells us that there's a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead, right? So she didn't really die. I mean, she, she just kind of was in this sleeping state. Not true. That's not what's happening. In fact, the context is really clear. She's dead, okay? She's all dead. And Jesus knows she's dead too. But because of what he's about to do, he says, it's like she's just sleeping. That's the power of Jesus. And sometimes in the midst of our suffering, when God works, that doesn't make sense to us. Can we just be honest? And so verse 40 says, they laughed at him because they know she's dead too. And so this, 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 they don't get it. This doesn't make any sense. It seems like Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. But you just wait. He took the child's father took the child's mother, and he went in to where the child 
was. Can you just imagine what that moment must have been like for Jairus? And the last time he saw her, as he was rushing out the door, he was hoping that he'd make it back in time. He'd get Jesus, and they'd, they'd get here. And he was kind of hoping maybe she'd feel better. We always feel like when we go off to the, I'm going to go, 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 go get some medicine. Maybe by the time I get back, she'll feel better. If not, Jesus will be here. He'll be able to put his hands on her. She'll be healed. And, and now it's his worst fears realized. A parent's worst nightmare. I mean, we feel bad for the, the guy who had a demon. We feel sorry for the woman who's bleeding, but this tears your heart out because this is not right. You ever seen death up close? I'll never forget getting a phone call on a Monday morning. I've told you this, saying that my friend, my pastor, who'd I'd just seen the day before, had had a heart attack, was on his way to the hospital, 41 years old. I jump in the car and I rush there and I got to the hospital too late. I'll never forget, standing around his bed, like, kind of in shock, like, heck, how did this happen? Feeling like this helpless moment. Being around a corpse is kind of an, an, an unsettling, horrible feeling. And rightfully so. Because death is a violation of God's creation. So, so, so what must Jesus have felt like looking at that little girl whom he created, now ravaged and slaughtered by the enemy of death? But he does not stand helplessly by. Verse 41 says he took her hand. He said, little girl, I say to you, arise. Tim Keller's been really helpful to me in this and pointing out the, the tenderness of this moment that he he uses a term of endearment. Makes the contrast all the better because in this moment, come on, let's be honest, we wonder, how could you believe that this story could have a happy ending? I mean, death is so awful and, and the suffering is so painful and confusing, but there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about it now. But for Jesus, he has so much power that for him, it's just like a daddy who goes into his little girl's room in the morning on a school day goes up and grabs her hand and leans in and says, honey, it's time to get up now. Just like that, she's up. So I, I know that in our, sometimes we just feel overwhelmed by the suffering. The horror of it doesn't seem possible that it could ever get better. But, but you got to see that the, the power of Jesus, there's, there's no difference between him healing her sickness or raising her from the dead. He has the power to restore. And so if we have the faith to see the severity of his power and the certainty of his promises, then we're going to realize we, we have no reason to ever doubt his goodness or to rush his actions because we have never been in danger of him not being able to rescue us from our suffering and bring restoration in his perfect timing. And the great confidence of the gospel, the promise of his return, is that he can and he will. I don't know if you're suffering. I don't know. 
Honestly, I can't tell you how long it's going to last. I wish I, could, I wish I could tell you that it's going to be over soon. And I want to be really clear on this. Mark chapter 5 does not mean that if you just pray in faith about the suffering that you're having right now, that that means that the medication that you're taking is guaranteed to work or, or that the doctors will be able to get it all or, or that God will play clean up and he'll just come and do some miraculous healing in case they can't. He can heal. But we're not proclaiming some uh, you know, health, wealth, false gospel that would say that God never lets bad things happen to his people. We live in a broken and sin-cursed world, and so we're, we're bound to feel those effects and consequences. And when we're in those, man, it hurts, doesn't it? And I want to know, like, why isn't he working? And maybe you feel that anxiety that if he does work, it's going to be too late. And I can't tell you how long it's going to last, but God's word does tell you it will not last forever. It won't. In fact, even if your suffering ends in death, even that's not the end. We're celebrating this week the life of Billy Graham. So thankful for his ministry, thankful for his faithfulness. I love that he ended well. Uh, I came across something that he said years ago this week that just filled my heart with faith. He said this, one day you will hear that Billy Graham has died. Don't believe it. On that day, I will be more alive than I ever will be. See, he understood what, what Paul is telling us, 2 Corinthians 5. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's where we're going. That's where we get to go when we die. But guess what? It gets even better than that. Because Jesus has been raised to new life, now we have the promise that our dead bodies will be resurrected too. So let that fill your heart with hope in the midst of your suffering that you could start comparing it to what God is going to do. That's what Paul does. He says, this, this is just light and momentary. I know it feels heavy. I know it feels like it's been a long time, but it is light and it is momentary, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So it does not matter how dark your days have grown or how deep the wounds have cut or how long the trial lasts. It does not end in suffering. It ends in glory. Does anybody want that? So we long for that, don't we? Anybody looking forward to going home? We want to be there in that world. We long for the day when we will live in the presence of God's beauty and his glory. As C.S. Lewis has reminded us that the present we're on the outside of the world. We're on the wrong side of the door. Feel that? But he says the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The great hope for the believer in Jesus is that because of what he's accomplished and because he will be faithful to his promises, we can have this confidence that we will see the victory come and that all of our suffering will come to an end. So don't lose heart. Are you suffering right now? Feeling that weight? There is one, your Savior, who suffered for you wants to lift your head, fill your heart with hope. 
You can trust his power. And his timing is perfect. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to believe these things. There are days it's easier. And there are days we hurt and long. We long for you to end it. I praise you that my life, my story, is guaranteed to have a happy ending. God, what great hope that we have as the church. That we can look around and we see the suffering. We see the injustice. We see the brokenness. We see the pain. It does not end in this. It ends in glory. And so I pray that we would declare that power. I pray that we would be faithful this week to trust you. And there's somebody that I know, someone that all of us know that needs to hear this and be reminded of this word. God, would you use us to to be a source of truth and encouragement? That we would believe the gospel and rejoice in the hope of glory. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise that you deserve in Jesus' name.